so to finish off our division previews, we have the Central Division. And on to help us talk about the Central Division uh, is Sean Wheeler, Hypno Wheel himself, on for this episode. How are you, Sean? Good. Good to be here. And, uh, Sean, just so everyone knows how to get in touch with you outside of Detroit Bad Boys, what's your uh, Twitter handle and all that good stuff? Yes, on Twitter, I'm at HypnoWheel, and uh, same same name on DBB and, uh, you know, Facebook. Uh, kind of go by a different moniker on there, but uh, you guys can find me uh, any way you like. Okay, great. And also joining us, as always, is Ben Galker. I rem- remember to actually introduce you this week. How are you, Ben? Hey, you know, I'm really looking forward to a healthy dose of Kool-Aid. Thanks to Hypno Wheel, it's going to be a good week. <laughs> That's right. Uh, when I had the idea of doing the division previews, it, a large part of it was because of, Sean, the last few years you've done playoff previews for the Eastern Conference and have ranked the Eastern Conference teams in the offseason. So I definitely, yes. I'm glad we could get you on for the Central to talk about some of these teams because I think you do a pretty good job of breaking it down for uh, for DBB readers in the, uh, in the offseason. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting cracking. Awesome. Well, yeah, let's get going. What's kind of interesting about the Central Division, just to start it off, is we have the teams at 3-4-5 very close together in terms of wins, losses, and kind of just our thoughts in general being kind of all over the place with 3, 4, and 5. So starting off at number 5, just squeaking into the basement is the Indiana Pacers. Uh, Sean, I'll start with you. What does your best case and worst case seasons look like for the Pacers this year? You know, I, I'm not really a big fan of what they did in the offseason, but I would say that the best case probably isn't all that bad. I, you know, I think I when I when I was uh, putting my thoughts together originally for them and coming up with the worst case, I think what I was thinking would be uh, maybe a lottery, obviously. So they could be the bottom of the division if they just get bullied around and the lack of size, and I mean, you know, not necessarily height, but weight. I mean, they're, they're a very thin and frail but quick team. But I could see them getting bullied from, you know, right from the point guard spot all the way down to the center lead on defense enough then, you know, worst case scenario for them is, is um, you know, they could be uh, very much on the outside looking in. Yeah, I think best case is, uh, you know, it's probably second round. I can't really see them going past Toronto, Boston, or Cleveland. I, I really don't see them getting past Detroit either. Um, but I do think they could make it into the second round if things go really well for them. Uh, ben, it seems that your your feelings on the Pacers a little different from from Sean's, at least in terms of what the best case season looks like. Uh, so what are, what are your best case scenario kind of look like for uh, the Pacers? Yeah, so for the Pacers, um, I, I am not very high on them. I don't, don't like what they did this offseason. So when I'm thinking about the Pacers this year, I'm not even really thinking about their best case in terms of wins and losses. I'm thinking about the development of Miles Turner as their best case scenario. I think uh, in, in Turner, they have a very interesting player with a whole lot of talent, a whole lot of upside, and he could be sort of the prototypical big man if he develops along the trajectory that they're hoping for. In terms of their worst-case scenario, though, I think they could be bad on the basketball court. I think they could be pretty bad on the basketball court. And I think they have to think about their legitimate superstar, Paul George, maybe wanting out of a franchise um, that doesn't have a clear vision and doesn't have a clear direction for how they take the next step and get back to the team that they were a couple of years ago when they really looked like a, a very promising team in the Eastern Conference going back prior to uh, that freakish injury that George suffered a, a couple of years ago. So for me, the Pacers, you know, on the court, I don't have high expectations from them. I don't see a lot in their roster. 
uh, that suggests they're going to be very good. So I think they need to focus on internal development and developing a clear game plan for the future of the franchise. I would. Uh, I just want to jump in and say I agree that's a real danger. When you look at their roster, I mean, other than Turner, um, maybe I'm missing something, but I don't see a lot of young building blocks that you would think, oh, Paul George might think, oh, let's just stick around for another year or two and see if these guys develop. I mean, if, if they just can't get it going this year and if this is a flop, other than Turner, I mean, they've got a bunch of interchangeable parts who really don't have an enormous um, growth potential. So that, that's something that I could see as well. Yeah, and when you have Paul George, I think this is a, a top 10 player in the league and probably one of the few superstars in this league that does not have the supporting cast and doesn't really have those young pieces as well, like you talked about, Sean. For each of us, Paul George was the most important player on this team. But I think it's a very important decision he has to make about if he's a part of the future of this franchise and is going to ride it out for a few years. Sean, which way do you see this going? Is this a situation where you think Paul George could be a little like Carmelo Anthony and maybe stick with a franchise through thick and thin? Uh, or is this the type of player you see maybe moving on uh, if this year goes as poorly as we you know, are projecting it could in Indiana? I think it would have to be really, really poor. And I'm not sure their roster is bad enough for them to be like really, really poor. I mean, yeah. I, I can't see a scenario in which Larry Bird's going to let go of him unless, I mean, they're just a dumpster fire. And while, while I don't, you know, I agree with Ben, and I, I'm not high on them, I don't see them as being a dumpster fire. I just see them as being, you know, sorely underperforming or underwhelming, given the fact that they have a roster that is filled with guys like Ellis and Teague and um, Thaddeus Young. These are guys who are not, like I said, these are not up-and-comers who you're hoping are going to get better. You kind of know what you have in those guys already. It's very true. So if this is if the if the best that they can do is the lottery with this roster, then he's going to have to really pull some wizard trades, you know, SV Bauer style, or they're going to be stuck in the you know on the outside looking in for the near future. So that's a that's going to be a really tough call to make um, for for Bird if that's what you know if this team just can't get get it together enough to at least be a playoff team. Right, and kind of continuing that idea of what it would take for this team to be a playoff team, Ben, I know that's not really your thought with the Pacers for this year. Uh, each of us had Miles Turner as the most intriguing player. Uh, if he becomes the second best player on this team uh, for the upcoming season, is that good enough to maybe elevate them in the Central Division? I'm still very skeptical because I think that step, in order to push them into the playoffs, uh, or even further up in the division, it's going to have to be very substantial. And mm-hmm. I mean, Turner's, I think, 19 right now, or just approaching 20. So, I mean, super young, and was actually pretty productive last year for, for his age especially. But, I mean, he, he wouldn't just have to be the second-best player, which I think he, he might arguably be already. He would have to become uh, a very, very good player in order for them um, to move forward, because you look at the rest of the roster, and they've got spare parts. I mean, it's Paul George, superstar, uh, Turner, up and comer, and then a whole bunch of spare parts: Thad Young, Monte Ellis, Al Jefferson, Jeff Teague, Rodney Stuckey. None of those guys, you know, I look at and think, oh yeah, those are definitely above average NBA starters. I think those are guys who are pretty much middle of the pack at their positions, which is fine. You might be able to get to 35 wins like that, uh, but you you need. Um, two really, really good players, given that supporting cast, to, to get over 43 wins, which is likely what's going to take to get to the playoffs in the Eastern Conference. 
Sean, just to follow up on that, uh, Ben is kind of looking at this this cast of players as spare parts, and it seems that you might be a little bit higher on some of those complementary pieces. What is it that you like about this roster that makes you think that they have a higher floor for this upcoming season? I think maybe it's more like they aren't as bad as some of the other teams in the division and in the East. That makes me think they might do a little bit better. Like, I'm much lower on the Bucks. I'm, I'm lower on the Bulls. A lot of those other teams in the other divisions, I, I think, are could really have a, the, the possibility of looking, you know, things could turn out very ugly. Whereas for the Pacers, I don't know. I really don't think it could get all that bad with Paul George and a former all-star in Jeff Teague. I mean, look, I, I know he's not a perennial all-star. I know he's not that much better than George Hill, mm-hmm. but he's a solid, reliable, quick point guard who has proven that he can play at a pretty high level consistently over time. So with him there running the show, uh, with other guys who at least we've seen what they can do and they're reliable. I mean, you know, you've got um, Jefferson coming off the bench. He and Stucky both can score fairly reliably, reliably uh, for bench players, um, but they're certainly not going to fit the run-and-gun style of the, the starting unit that's, that's supposedly been envisioned. So that's going to look – their second unit apparently is going to look significantly different. And this is a team that I feel like the pieces don't quite fit the identity, and part of that is the move to get Jeff Teague. I'm just not sure what you're going for because I hear – Coach Nate McMillan speak, I hear uh, Larry Bird, the team president, talk, and it just doesn't seem to quite align to what this roster looks like, and that's kind of the issue I'm having with this team. So to me, this seems like a roster that could really benefit from trades. Ben, is there anything just on the surface that you think um, would be you know, tradable assets or moves that they could make this season? Well, I think that's part of the challenge, is because they they don't have, other than Paul George and Miles Turner, Anyone who, you know, is going to be coveted very significantly. But with that said, um, the guys that they do have, the guys that I'm sort of calling spare parts, are all on very reasonable contracts in the context of NBA spending right now. So Thad Young, Monte Ellis, Al Jefferson, obviously not eligible till uh, middle of December, uh, and even Stucky. Uh, all of those guys, I think, you know, you might be able to, to swing them for small upgrades, but I don't see enough there to make any sort of a blockbuster deal because the guys that they have who they want to trade are are just not all that desirable. I think they're going to be looked at as mostly bench fillers. If if there's a team looking to bring one of those guys in, you know, rather than the guy who puts a starting lineup uh, over the edge. Uh, And then additionally, they don't really have anybody on, you know, a big, huge expiring contract that somebody might want to swoop in and, and grab in order to rebuild. So I don't view their roster as particularly trade friendly, uh, given that they're not going to want to trade George and Turner, who are really the only two guys I think that will be that desirable. Yeah, and we have seen playoff teams, or maybe the Pacers could win a trade if they were able to get a, a pick coming back. But Ben, you're right, that doesn't help them now. Uh, and that's why I feel this team, maybe it's just kind of what you see is what you get this year in terms of the roster, uh, just because they made enough moves in the offseason that I'm not sure at what point with a new head coach and so many changes in the rotation, do they decide it's time to go in a different direction? I'm just not sure, first, who makes that decision, and then second, you know, what position are you in to be able to do that? Uh, If they're on the playoff bubble, I'm sure they're just going forward with what they have. So it puts them in kind of a tough position uh, in terms of thinking about a trade for this season. I want to talk about the coach, Nate McMillan. This was a very surprising hire. I think part of it was just the very surprising 
uh, firing of Frank Vogel at the end of last season after a very good showing in the playoffs. Uh, I thought that was one of the more questionable moves. And Ben, I think you agree with me with what you wrote about Nate McMillan. Yeah, WTF, were they thinking? Is how I, <laughs> coach. I don't understand. I, I have very little more to say than that. It's a very strange move. Vogel has been established as a very, I think I would call him very good, a very good NBA coach. Nate McMillan does not have that same sort of track record. So a very, very puzzling decision. Yeah, I thought it was very puzzling. I didn't realize he had been a head coach for 12 seasons in the NBA. He's won almost 500 games. He's been in the playoffs. I think five of his 12 seasons as a head coach, he's made the playoffs uh, with Portland and with Seattle. So so that's nice. I think there's a, a decent track record there. But the thing that does not make any sense is, again, the team's identity and how it fits to their head coach. Uh, this was a team last year that was already playing with the 10th fastest pace in the NBA, uh, but Nate McMillan has come out and talked quite a bit about pace and the fact that he wants to play faster and shoot more threes. Uh, and Ben, I know we've talked about this a bit with just the questionable moves they made this offseason. Then you go out and bring in players that I don't think make this a better shooting team. I don't think really improve the spacing. So I'm not sure how this coach with this roster leads to this team playing faster. Uh, Sean, are you seeing something that maybe Ben and I are missing with Nate McMillan? Uh, no, I'm not really thinking too much of him. I was, I, I'm really looking more at the talent, you know, when it comes to Nate McMillan, the only thing I can say, you know, from, from what I've gathered, I'm not the, I'm not the, uh, Nate McMillan authority in the world, but I can <laughs> say that the word, word around the campfire is that Nate isn't really known for pace. You know, his teams haven't right. really historically played, uh, that style. So if he's doing it now, it's kind of like, Hey, that's what we should do because that's what the guy who hired me wants me to do. So, Okay. But this is not a logical coaching fit. Um, there's, you know, everyone around the league was thinking, what are they doing giving up Vogel? And Birdo is almost like, it's almost like almost like one of those Dumars era moves where it's like, oh, I can't really change my core players, so I guess I'm just going to change the coach because we're not happy with how good they were last year. Like a move just to make a move. And uh, it certainly wasn't a clear upgrade. It was more like, uh, I don't know, Flip Saunders to Michael Curry kind of a move. And uh, I don't know if that's going to move the needle significantly for them. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm not sure how Nate McMillan makes this team any better than the playoff team we saw last year that looked pretty good in a six-game series with the Raptors. I'm not sure what steps they take this season that they would surprise me. I, I think the surprise with the Pacers, for me at least, is if this team actually goes the opposite direction and, and how bad could it get. So I think we're kind of getting to that point where we start to look at the larger picture for this season for the Pacers. Uh, any large storylines out there that you're you're kind of interested in for this season, Ben, before we get into wins and playoff odds? Yeah, so for me, the top storyline is how did they rebuild around Paul George? And I think that's a very difficult question to answer. We've talked about sort of the oddities of their roster, both in terms of talent and trade assets. So to me, that's the main question. They're, I don't think they're going to be very good. And I think any storyline they hear is going to be, you know, what do we have to do to make it work with Paul George at the center of the franchise? So with that being said, let's talk about their playoff odds, Ben. Do you have them as a playoff team, and how many wins for the upcoming season? No, I don't have them as a playoff team, and I have a pretty pessimistic outlook of 33 wins. Ooh, 33. See, that would be only two more wins than what I give the 76ers this year. 
just to put that in perspective for everyone. That's that's not good. 33 wins probably puts them in, what, the bottom four or five, Ben? Yeah, and you might want to stop bringing up the fact that you expected the Sixers <laughs> to win 31 games. I'm just saying. I brought it up in each podcast, and I, I've, I, I think at this point I'll ever die with it. Are, is this a playoff team, and how many wins? Well, you know, my initial thoughts were yes, and you know, for the reasons that I've given, that they're not a terrible roster. Um, and my initial projection, you know, the article I wrote months ago for the Eastern Conference, I had them slotted in there at sixth, um, you know, partly due to listening to you guys, but partly due to just, you know, thinking about it a bit more over time. Um, I'm a little less optimistic about that. And rather than saying 43 wins, I might be more inclined to say 41-ish. Um, and I think maybe even the Wizards, I could project as being a little bit better than them. Um, but again, it's, it's really about looking at those other teams in the East. It's about, you know, I don't know if the East is all that they're interesting. The East is interesting, but there's not just a lot of obvious, clear powerhouse teams in the East that you could say are definitely going to be better than the Indiana Pacers. So I'm still not quite as down on them as Ben is. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I will say this is another year in the Eastern Conference that teams four through 12, I think are pretty close. And, and that kind of leads to a situation where if you do have a roster of players that are good enough and are giving you production and you know where it's coming from, a, a core of veterans who have proven themselves, having that proven roster, Sean, I agree with you, I think that's nice to have when you look at some of the rosters that have major questions and are not sure where their production is coming from this season uh, in the rest of the Eastern Conference. So in a tight conference and a team that might be able to squeak out some wins, I think it's fair to see them as a team that could win 40 games. I'm closer, though, to thinking what Ben has kind of offered. I have this team outside of the playoffs winning 35 games, and my issue is going to be I don't see this team being all that efficient on the offensive end, and I see them being pretty bad defensively, uh, even with Paul George, and I know he's a good defender. I just don't see this being a good defensive team. I just don't know how they can outscore enough teams to be a playoff team this year. Uh, So I have them, again, 35 wins and not a playoff team. And that leads us now to number four in the Central Division, the Milwaukee Bucks. Sean, I'll start with you, your best and worst case for the Bucks. Uh, Well, the worst case scenario is definitely more of the same, and that's, you know, bottom four in the East. Um, That's significantly strengthened due to the injury to Chris Middleton. Uh, The recent blockbuster trade in which they received Tony Snell (laughs) or Michael Carter-Williams, I don't think changes things all that much, but it does take a guy who can't shoot. And it gives them a guy who maybe can. He's a, you know, Snell can shoot 36% from downtown. They certainly need that. Um, but really without Milton, I mean, he was the only surefire starter who could shoot the ball from downtown. So you take him out of the equation, and they've got a bunch of long, talented dudes who can't shoot. Ben, uh, your best and worst case? I think their best case scenario is they focus on developing um, the young pieces of what could be their core and maybe see some incremental progress, but not enough to ultimately you know, move the needle in terms of a playoff push. I think their worst-case scenario would be to try to hit the panic button and make a trade that shackles them to a veteran on a bad contract. And I, I don't necessarily have anything particular in mind, and I'm not sure that that's where their leadership you know, would, would make a mistake. But I think that would be their long-term um, Worst case scenario is they they make a bad trade really focused around a bad contract. So I've got them just barely above Indiana in terms of their wins and losses because I think they have a decent big man rotation, and I think there'll be some productivity there that gets them a a few wins um, better than the Pacers and some of those other bad teams. 
but ultimately not a very good team um, that's not positioned well for a playoff run this season. I'm not sure how they could position themselves as a playoff team after what I saw last year and then the injury to Chris Middleton. Uh, Sean, I think you said it best that while they tried to, similar to what Chris Middleton has given them the last two years, in trading for Tony Snell, what they did was trade for someone who can't shoot for someone who can maybe shoot. I, I like that. I just, I'm not sure how that really moves the needle. Uh, and I, I think they're going to really miss Chris Middleton because he was that kind of safety valve for the offense at times last year and the one capable shooter that I think they're really going to miss. And without him, I can see this team really struggling on the offensive end. Uh, and it's putting a lot of pressure on the player that we all have is the most important for the Milwaukee Bucks, and that's point guard Giannis Antetokounmpo. This is a player that has an incredible ceiling, can guard one through five, has played one through five uh, under Jason Kidd, and now, it seems, is going to have the ball in his hands a lot more. Is that good or bad for Giannis going into this year, seeing that he's going to be possibly running that offense and also having the ball more? I'm inclined to think good because he's been in the league for a few years and he has a sense of what NBA basketball is like, what the pace is like, what the physicality is like. And I think... Sort of, I don't know if they're going to slot him at point guard. It seems like they will, or if he'll be more of like a point forward in the mold of like Scottie Pippen in his heyday or whatever. But I mean, here's a guy who's proven he's athletic enough. He's got enough talent to be, you know, someone who competes for an all star spot when he gets to his prime. Mm-hmm. So to me, you give a guy who's been in the league for this amount of time and produced at this amount of time a larger role, and that's natural and that makes sense. And I think if for whatever reason it doesn't work out well in terms of the the point Giannis, they've got uh, a guy in Matthew Dellavedova who I think was a, a savvy offseason acquisition who can carry a significant chunk of that load. And I, I think Delhi is actually good enough to be a 25 to 30 minute point guard for a team that wants to make a run for a little playoff seed. And while I don't think they're there this year, I think they've got a safety belt. They've got a way out if for whatever reason it doesn't work. But personally, I'm actually very interested in this team for that reason, and I've got a soft spot for Greg Monroe. Uh, so I'll follow the Bucks. Like, I've continued to follow the Bucks, and to me, this will be the main storyline. Yeah, I completely agree. It's still a, a very young core, uh, but I think you're right. They need to figure out what players are going to be here for the future and, and kind of sort out the roster because it doesn't all make sense right now. Uh, but I think that's okay as long as you have a patient front office, and hopefully Milwaukee has that. Ben, all of us have Jabari Parker as the most intriguing player. What is it about Jabari that you find intriguing? Just what in his game do you find intriguing uh, before we go a little bit further with him? Sure. I mean... To me, the reason he's the most intriguing player is not something specific about his game or his style of play or something like that. It's the fact that he didn't make any real significant progress from his rookie season where he only played 25 games to his sophomore season uh, where he played 76 games after recovering, obviously, from that injury. And to me, that's a little bit of a red flag because he's a guy coming out of college who I thought could be a a really interesting sort of hybrid 3-4 uh, new prototypical NBA forward, and I still think he has that potential. I mean, he's only 20 years old, I believe, right now, uh, so he could still make that step, but he didn't make that step last year. So to me, that's the question, and that's why he's interesting. Uh, what's his ceiling, and how quickly is it going to take for him to get there? Is he going to get there next year and take a big step, or is he going to be a guy who develops more slowly over time? And that's an important question for the Bucks to answer uh, as they figure out how to tool this franchise for the future. And that was kind of my question with Jabari, is what is his ceiling, and will we get to see 
more of that this season. Uh, Sean, do you have any idea what Jabari's ceiling might be? And then uh, what are your expectations for him this season? Well, I was looking at I was looking at what he's done so far in the preseason, just as a sort of barometer. And he hasn't played more than twenty nine minutes, but he's scored twenty one points twice. Um, he seems to be shooting uh, very efficiently. Um, even his three pointers, he's kind of it looks like he's above forty percent so far in the in the preseason. Although he's not firing him up um, all that much, but I you know I think his ceiling is I mean this year. I mean if he he was scoring fourteen points a game last year, I mean I think he could be up around. I mean with Middleton gone and them relying on him more, I could see him being a seventeen or eighteen point a game scorer this year. He's also adding you know six seven rebounds a game. Um, and that's, you know, again, this is, this is, he's only playing 25, 29 minutes. I mean, he could really light it up. He could be a high scoring, um, small forward, power forward, hybrid, whatever you want to call it. And, um, the, the downside of course is he's soft on D, you know? So when you don't bring a lot on defense, you really have a lot of responsibility to be an efficient offensive player. So he's going to have to shoot better than 26% from three, and he's going to have to now shoulder more of the load on offense given the fact that, uh, you know, Middleton's gone. Yeah, that's right. And you're you're correct that we kind of have to take this preseason with a grain of salt, but it does seem that Jabari is shooting a lot better. And if he can find, you know, if he can kind of find his stroke early in this season, that really helps this offense uh, at least kind of loosen up a bit. And, and it does t- kind of take the pressure off of, Dallavadova and Giannis, whoever kind of ends up running this offense. We all kind of mentioned Greg Monroe in terms of a player that might be traded. I thought it might be for a Chris Middleton replacement. I'm not sure if the Bucks will still be in the market for someone to replace Chris Middleton after that blockbuster for Tony Snell. But it does seem that Greg Monroe might be the odd man out. He is a little bit older than the rest of the players in this core. Part of that is just because it's a very young core of players in Milwaukee. Ben, I'll start with you, because I know you do have that soft spot for Greg Monroe. This is a player that I know you root for. Uh, would you like to see him in another situation outside of Milwaukee? Yeah, I would. And it's not necessarily outside of Milwaukee, that's the thing. I think, for whatever reason, there's this really very strong um, bias against players like Greg Monroe in the NBA right now. And I think that's, you know, there's a lot there's a lot of reasons why. It's explainable and it's understandable. But I think there's a lot of people who, on the one hand, they will criticize a player like Greg Monroe for not being mobile enough, not being a rim protector, not being able to stretch the floor, et cetera. But I'll hear those same players say that adding a guy like Al Jefferson as your go-to offensive option off the bench can make you better in terms of your playoff push. So to me, I feel like um, people are talking a little bit out of both sides of their mouths when they talk about (laughs) guys like Greg Monroe. I think there's still room for a player like Greg Monroe in today's NBA. I think he can be part of a winning team, uh, but I don't think that's as the number one option or maybe even the number two option. Uh, And so for me, it's just, I think he played well for Detroit. I think he played hard for Detroit and I think he was underappreciated. So, so I have a soft spot for him, but I also think that guys like him can still make a difference in terms of wins and losses on the basketball court. And I'd like to see that role appreciated more broadly in today's NBA. Right. And as they continue to build this team, Sean, you had mentioned possibly trading Monroe for a three-point shooter. Uh, do you see that player uh, that's providing some three-point shooting coming in the front court? Or is that a backcourt player that Milwaukee should be looking for? 
Well, you know, with Middleton out now, they could use it anywhere and, and everywhere. So I think True. it would just be a question of who's who's available and who needs Monroe. That's that's the hardest thing right now is just finding a buyer for him. Like he is, I agree with Ben. He's got these great tools. He's got things to offer a team. But given the nature of the way the NBA is now playing, with everyone's got to be able to guard two positions and everyone's got to be able to run and shoot three pointers. That's what teams are looking for now. There isn't a huge market for what he offers, so that means the return is going to be somewhat low, more than likely. You're going to get less um, back in return for him than really what you're shipping out. It's going to be tough for them to find a real productivity return that's going to match what he can put up in terms of offense. Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be difficult because of the fit, exactly what you're talking about. That's uh, a type of player that, at least in today's NBA, is not valuable enough to bring you back a haul. I I think that the production is there. You know what you're going to get from Greg Monroe, uh, but you have to find the right team. I'm interested if the New Orleans Pelicans might be a, a good fit, if they could see Anthony Davis and Greg Monroe together. I'm not sure what a package would look like. Maybe Drew Holiday and Omer Ashik. Um, I'm not sure what it would take to get the contracts looking up. I'm, I'm really just spitballing here. But I feel like that's possibly a team where you could get a fair trade in return. Uh, but I think all signs are pointing to Monroe possibly moving on. Kind of group of players that could be pushing Greg Monroe's minutes, including John Henson as well, who they like on the defensive end and is still kind of still working on his offensive game. But I, I'm interested just to look at those front court players and how they all work together, and if there's another younger piece like Thon Maker who can start to carve out a role in his rookie year. So Ben, I will start with you. Is this a playoff team, and how many wins for the Bucks? No, they're on the outside looking in, I think, uh, and I have them right in the mid-30s at 35 wins. Sean, what about you? You know, I had them at 36 wins, and that was before Middleton was injured, so I'm oh. going to drop them down <laughs> a few more below that. Apologies to Tony Snell. I'm thinking probably around the 33-win range, maybe. Yeah, I have uh, 37 wins, and that puts the Bucks outside the playoff picture. Uh, now we move on to the number three team, and that's the Chicago Bulls. Ben, your best and worst case for the Chicago Bulls this year. So I'm super intrigued by the Bulls, and I am not um, super confident in any of my projections about them. I'll just say that I'm really intrigued by them, because I think if things work for them, I think it's very possible that they can get into the playoffs and they can win 45 or more games. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's pretty optimistic given what I'm hearing about them sort of all over the news and media. But I think that's a possibility, and I don't think it's incredibly unlikely. Like, I think it's feasible, and I think it could happen. Uh, but I think worst-case scenario is that they win 35 or fewer games, and that's because of all of the obvious challenges they're going to face on the offensive end of the floor – with a whole bunch of guys who can't really shoot the ball very well and no real clear game plan uh, on how to attack any defense in the NBA. You've got Rondo and Wade, one of the the strangest backcourts we've seen in a very long time. And then you're backing up Rondo with uh, basically Rondo Jr., Rondo Light, and Michael (laughs) Carter-Williams. You know, big wingspan, interesting on defense, good passer, can't really shoot. And you have that with both point guards. So you don't really get any sort of contrast between your first and second units. So I think they could really struggle offensively. And if they do, they're going to be on the outside looking in. So again, to me, very, very interesting team. I think it'll be fun to watch either way because I'm not a Bulls fan. Um, But it could go pretty well and they could surprise a lot of people. But it could just as easily go very poorly. Uh, And I think all of the pundits who've been scratching their heads would feel vindicated if and when that happens. 
Yeah, I agree. And as a Pistons fan, you're right. If it's a complete tire fire in Chicago, I'll be interested to watch that as well. Uh, and with the point guard situation, you're right. Those are two players that I think the reason they're inter- I think the reason that they're interesting defensively is because they should both be better defenders. I know it's been a few years since we've seen peak Rondo in terms of being a defensive stopper, but the last few years he's been disappointing. And Carter Williams has never really been a great defender. I know he has not been on good defensive teams. So that could be part of it. So before I get your best and worst case, Sean, what do you think of Carter Williams' fit on this team? I think it's absolutely horrible, but uh, <laughs> strangely appropriate given their other moves this offseason. I mean, when you've already got your key one through three guys who are starters who can't shoot, uh, well, you know, I don't want to be too hard on Butler, but they just need more shooting, and they bring in these, the prototypical cannot-shoot point guard. Um, who is, you know, essentially a poor version of Rondo, like a really poor version of Rondo. Um, and so I don't know how what he brings to the team, like other than being a tall, lanky point guard who used to be a starter and rookie of the year to your second unit. What they really need is a, is a guy like, I don't know, like a DJ Augustine or somebody who can knock down some threes, come in, relieve either Rondo or Wade, and um, be that guy who just, you know, comes off screens and knocks down some open jumpers. And they just gave away a guy who does that for a guy who doesn't. Yeah, I hope uh, Bulls fans are ready for missed wide-open threes. Because you have Michael Carter-Williams, Dwayne Wade, and Rondo. You have three guys that are going to miss some threes, and it's going to be very frustrating. Your your best and worst case season for this team. Well, the best case is that everything comes together, and you can say that a lot of teams, but for the Bulls, we do have a, a ton of talent, so it's really just be a question of the, do, do Wade and Butler and Rondo play so darn well, like up to that all-star level, often enough and consistently enough for them to beat teams in spite of the fact that they can't shoot very well. Um, and I think that's – I wouldn't be – you know, I'm not a betting man, and if I was a betting man, I would not be betting on them, um, you know, overreaching the, the general expectations that are there for them right now. So I think that the best case is probably going to be if it's like a dream miracle season, they win a they win a round in the playoffs and they go to the second round. Um, that's absolutely it. Um, a worst case scenario uh, is going to be clearly the lottery. I don't think they're bottom four, bottom five in the East, um, but I think if things don't go well and you know Rondo's attitude surfaces and um, you know, things just, uh, things just kind of, and Wade is injured half the season that they could very well be, you know, I don't know, bottom 16, missed the playoffs by a few games. Yeah. And I think a lot of that, if it all comes together, uh, it really comes down to Jimmy Butler and not, not to ask Jimmy Butler to take another step in his game, because I think it's fair to call him a superstar in this league. Would you guys agree? Or is it too early to call him a superstar? I call him one without hesitation. Yes. Okay. I'm thinking superstar is just a bit out of line. I reserve superstar for Paul George and uh, and guys who I don't know. Jimmy Butler has had as many nights where I've just had my jaw drop, you know, given what he's done. But he's he's on the verge, and he could make that leap. Yes, and that's that's kind of what I'm getting at. If he's able to make the leap to the upper echelon of players in the NBA. That could really change this team's outlook, even for this season. Uh, what is it going to take for him to take the next step in his game, Sean? It's going to take Dwayne Wade not taking it away from him. You know, <laughs> they, they bring in a guy 
who does ex- almost the same stuff. It's a good deep mid-range game off the dribble, drives to the hoop. I mean, they bring in a guy who's an older, um, more accomplished, but now with too many miles on the tires um, guy to play alongside of him on the wing, and that's going to be a big problem unless Wade sees him as being his LeBron and puts his ego on the side and isn't the guy who's looking to take the shot in the last, uh, you know, at the buzzer or in crunch time of the game. So that's going to be interesting. You know, does Wade have the maturity to do that? Sure, he's shown it before. Does he respect Butler as much as he respected LeBron? Um, And will the other pieces surrounding them fit enough for that to work out? I don't know. I think it's going to be tough. There's only one basketball, as the famous saying goes, and you got three guys at the one through three who really love to bounce it around and do stuff with it and you don't have a lot of guys who enjoy standing around or coming off screens spotting up and uh, making cuts to the hoop uh, in that lineup yeah this is one of those rosters that every time I look at it I'm reminded that they have someone so I look at it and I say oh yeah they still have Taj Gibson or oh yeah they've got Rondo it's one of those oh yeah they have teams and a lot of times that just doesn't work out. You've got a nice roster of names, uh, but when it goes into actually playing basketball, it can kind of struggle. But it is, again, another chance for Rondo to run a team that has some talented players because they're names that a lot of basketball fans know. But how do they work together? That's what I think a lot of people are struggling with uh, when you know talking about the Bulls' chances for this season. And Sean, one last point. I yeah. think I'd like this team better with Tibbs as the coach, as a as opposed to what they've chosen to do now, because I think yes. it, the, the coaching fit here is just strange. It's another one of those teams where it doesn't feel like the front office and the coaching staff are on the same page at all, uh, because it doesn't seem to match up in terms of what uh, they want Hoiberg to do with the roster they've decided to put together. Yeah, it's too bad that egos got in the way, and really expectation kind of got in the way of the Thibodeau situation in Chicago, because with this roster, I think he would be the perfect coach. Uh, it wouldn't. It would not be a pretty brand of basketball, but I think it could lead no, to some be, wins. it'd be ugly. It'd be super ugly, yeah. but he's the exact kind of coach you want for that. I, I, I don't, I cannot imagine that they really see themselves as a contender. I think it's really foolish to think that they would be, you know, even contending in the Eastern Conference or even in the Central Division. I mean, we have them as the third team in this division. So I, I'm not sure what their expectations are, and that could really affect if this team is active at the deadline. Uh, I like the idea of trading Taj Gibson for a three-point shooter. I'm wondering if they would consider calling up Minnesota and Coach Tibbs again and seeing if they could get either Zach Levine or Shabazz Muhammad, a younger wing player who can shoot, still developing. I could see both of those guys having an issue uh, with Coach Tibbs in terms of their effort on the defensive end. So if they could go and get a younger player like that for Taj Gibson, who could probably still give something to a playoff team, then maybe that helps them a bit when they do this all again next offseason. Because that's kind of what I expect, is that this is a team that's going to be looking to do what they did this offseason one more time, and that's try to build it again around Jimmy Butler. Um, But it's, it's too bad that they want to do it so fast. So that's that's kind of my top storyline as well is just how they're building this team. Uh, Sean, your top storyline is chemistry. Are you do you have concerns about the chemistry or just kind of overall questions about how the roster fits? Well, Rondo's got you know his, historically is known for having sort of a bad attitude, not being the best locker room guy. You've got Wade, who basically just did a big fu to Miami with this move. I mean, everybody knows that's what it was about. It was that they didn't want to 
pay him um, the most money that he could possibly earn. So, you know, after years of deferring to, to LeBron and taking less money to be on a winner, you know, he's, he just kind of like gives the, gives the heat the bird and jumps ship to somebody who can pay him what he wants. And it happens to be his hometown team, so that kind of makes everybody feel good. Um, but what's his what's his role there? I mean, he just came from a team where he was the man. It was his, it was, you know, he was the Steve Eiserman, so to speak, for for that team that played there his whole career. And now he's coming to this new team that's not going to be all that great. And he's got a ball hog point guard playing next to him, and he's got a guy who's a younger, better version of him, or younger and you know, could be soon better than he is playing on the playing the three spot. So I don't know. I mean, are these guys all going to just agree to be a 42 win team and be cool with it? Maybe not. Uh, and, and Ben, you, you have higher expectations for this, for this team this season. Do you have this team in the playoffs and how many wins? Yeah, I have them on the bubble. I think they're going to be kind of fighting for the chance to get eliminated in the first round uh, because I don't see any chance that they, they get out of the first round if they do somehow make the playoffs. But to me, this is a team that's a really interesting case study in some of the advanced box score analytics that I really like and appreciate wins produced, win shares. When you look at that team through this lens and only this lens, this is a pretty good team that should win 45 games. But when you take into some uh, into consideration some of those other factors that we've already unpacked quite a bit, I think that casts doubt on whether or not they'll be able to actually hit that ceiling that the stats suggest that they might. Uh, with that said, I, I really like Jimmy Butler. I really like Rajon Rondo. And I think their big man rotation is being lost in the shuffle of all the talk on what's happening on the perimeter. And I think they're pretty good. And I think that's going to be good enough to get them uh, into the conversation for the eighth seed in the East. So, yeah, Sean, go ahead and tell, tell us if this is a playoff team and then how many wins for the Bulls. You know, uh, I think my initial thought was no, just because of the chemistry and the lack of shooting um, from the one through three uh, spot in the starting unit and the sort of poor fit issue. Um, you know, but I, but I think I might have been a little bit crazy when I predicted the Pacers to win a few more games than the Bulls because when I'm looking at the, the roster, I don't really see a lot of spots other than Paul George. Maybe the Pacers have better guys, at least in that starting unit. Um, I don't think uh, I'd rather have Ellis than Wade. I don't think I'd rather have uh, necessarily Teague than Rondo. Um, I don't think I'd rather have uh, um, the uh, the four in Indiana instead of Mirotic, if that's who, who's running young, rather. And um, <laughs> maybe at the five, I'm pretty sure I'd have Robin Lo- rather have Robin Lopez than, uh, than maybe this year's version of uh, Miles Turner. So... Um, looking at it through that lens, the Bulls maybe, you know, uh, could pull it off, but I think more than likely it's going to be just barely on the outside looking in. Yeah, I agree uh, with both of you. This is a, a bubble team for me as well. I do not have them in the playoffs. I have them winning 38 games just outside of uh, the playoffs in the Eastern Conference. Uh, before we move on to number two, with the teams at three, four, and five, if it all comes together, and we said that, it, I think each of us said it once, talking about the Bulls, Bucks, and Pacers. If it all comes together, what team do you like is possibly finishing number two in this division behind the Cavaliers? Well, you know, I really, I don't know, I really only think the Bulls probably, looking at it objectively, have the tools to do that. I don't think the Pacers and the Bucks have the guns right now to get in that conversation. And Ben, what about you? Yeah, I largely agree. Short term, I would take the Bulls. Long term, I'm still intrigued by the Bucks, but I, I don't think this year is the year. Yeah, I agree. Just looking at it in terms of wins, 
Uh, Sean, it looks like you would have the, the Pacers closest, while Ben and I would have the Bulls closest to the team we have at number two, and that is the Detroit Pistons. I, I decided that, and Ben, I know we were a little back and forth on this, if we were going to talk about the Pistons or not, but just for all the listeners to know, we are going to have a full Pistons preview next week where we're just talking about the team, but I wanted to get Sean's opinion on this team and also talk a little about uh, just where they fit in the Central Division. So, Having the Pistons at number two, Sean, I'll start with you. Your best and worst case seasons for the Pistons. All right, so I'll give you a little bit of Kool Aid up front, but then I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna water it down a little bit. So <laughs> perfect. I think a best case. If I said anything less than NBA Finals for best case scenario, I think I'd slap myself in the face. The, the only reason I would say that is because I think they're a clear number two to the Cavs in the Central. Um, I think that they're a clear um, with everyone healthy again, and we'll talk about the Reggie thing. But I think if uh, when everyone's healthy, they're they're starting five as one of the best in the league, not just in the Eastern Conference. So I think what it, what that would mean is the best case scenario is that you know <laughs> Cleveland kind of falls apart. Somebody one of their big three has significant injury time. Um, I think it would kind of take that even for the Pistons to be at their very best to get there this year. But I think a, more of a realistic best case scenario is Eastern Conference Finals. And I know some people don't think that they'll get that far. I really think that it's possible if things come together as well as they possibly could. Uh, worst case scenario. I don't think there's any worse than the first round. I think even if they have a, a really subpar, disappointing, frustrating season, I think they're still getting into the playoffs. Um, I don't see any way, given the, the talent they possess now and, and Van Gundy's history with other teams, as well as with this team in the past two years, the growth. There's, I just don't see a way that this team doesn't make the playoffs unless Reggie or Andre or one of their key player misses another chunk of 20 plus games or something like that at some point throughout the season. I'll save most of it for next week, but uh, I'm a little more skeptical on the best case scenario. I think the realistic best case scenario is that they're a very tough second round exit. I I think it's going to be Cleveland, Toronto and Charlotte. And I'm pretty bullish on all three of those teams. And I have a hard time seeing the Pistons uh, being anything but an underdog to one of those three teams currently. Mm -hmm. But I really uh, strongly agree with the worst case scenario. I think this is a playoff roster. Uh, I think, again, barring a major injury or something completely out of the blue and fluky, they've cemented themselves as a playoff team. And I I think that's largely due to uh, Stan Van Bauer. I give a lot of credit to those guys for putting together a very versatile and flexible roster uh, that in any given night can attack you in a whole bunch of different ways. Uh, and can match up in, in a lot of really interesting ways against pretty much NBA uh, everybody in the NBA except probably Golden State. Um, I, I think they're a competitive, difficult team to face in any seven-game series, and no one in the East is going to want to play them. Ben, for uh, best case, you had said that this would be a tough second round out, uh, while well, Sean had said this could be a, a potential finals team in the East. What what do you think is the difference? Would it just be matchups? Uh, with this team being kind of a tough second round out, or do you think that's just kind of their ceiling right now? Uh, I think it's just kind of their ceiling right now. Okay. Um, I, I'll unpack this a little more next week, but I think there's potential if guys like Tobias Harris uh, and Contavious Caldwell-Pope, if those two guys both take a significant step forward this year, then I will completely throw my projection out the window, and I'll, I'll say that they can get to the Eastern Conference Finals and I think be a very, very difficult matchup for Cleveland in that scenario. Um, but, but I think a little more tempered approach says those guys are going to improve incrementally given the trajectory arc of those careers thus far. And when I think when you take rosters top to bottom, I still just like Charlotte a little bit better. 
and I still just like Toronto a little bit better uh, than the Pistons, mm-hmm. and that's why I think one of those two teams is, is probably in a seven-game series. They've got just a slight edge, and I think probably home court advantage gives them that edge. Yeah, I agree with you. And just looking at the best and worst case, so if Sean is offering up Kool-Aid and Ben, you're offering up some maybe like sugar-free crystal light, <laughs> then I'm just going to throw you guys with some tap water. I'm not as high, and I certainly believe there is a lower floor for this team. And the only reason I say that is because there have been teams in the Eastern Conference the last few years that have made the playoffs and then just missed the playoffs, whether it's because of injuries or just one of those head-scratching seasons where the team does not take the next step that many expected them to take. Uh, I can see the product we saw last year being very similar to the team we're going to see this year. And while I believe in the coach and the identity of this team, and I still think we're building a title contender in the Eastern Conference, I could see this year just being one of those head-scratching, how did we miss the playoffs when the Bulls made it? And I think there are also a lot of teams, just to kind of follow up on that, that are building a roster for this year. The Bulls are one of those teams, the Pacers are another, the Knicks as well. They don't have the future the Pistons have, but they could be better this year just because they have some veterans that maybe do a better job of winning games. Am I just being pessimistic, Sean? Or Jordan, yes. you just give us tap water. You peed in the Kool-Aid, man. That was a buzzkill. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I no problem. It, it, you know, Jordan, that was incredibly pessimistic, and I'll say the reason why you know, I'm capable of being pessimistic, believe it or not. I do have those thoughts. I just largely ignore them. The teams that don't take that next step or that, you know, make it to the playoffs, look like they're young and up and coming the next year, they kind of poop the bed and, and miss out. Yeah. There are things that are different about them. The, the big one I think that we're all remembering is Milwaukee. But if you look more closely at it, the reason why they made the playoffs in the first place was largely because of Brandon Knight. And then when they shipped him off, they tanked. You know, they went 11-18 and 18 to close the season, but they made it into the playoffs. They got on ESPN and SportsCenter, and they made some buzz, and Middleton hit a, you know, a, a shot at the buzzer that won a game. So, like, you look at them and you go, oh, but then they were terrible next year. Well, we could have predicted they would have been terrible because they traded away a really good point guard for one that isn't very good, and that That's true. kind of played itself out. So I think with the Pistons, the, the thing that makes them different from those other teams is that Pretty much every single contributing player that they have, every guy in there that's going to be in their rotation, should either be just as good or should be better than they were the previous year. Um, the, and, and the contrast that these other teams, the Bulls, the Bucks, and the Pacers, provide to the Pistons is really is really striking. And that those teams all have this sort of question mark in terms of their fit and the ages of their players and what they're trying to do this year. Whereas the Pistons, they have constructed an excellent fit. The only thing that is a question mark that is a really big one, is their their three-point shooting has got to be more consistent. Of course, Drummond's free throws, but that was the way it was last year. So when you look at what they did last year and you see they still won 44 games with no bench, with a bench that was literally one of the worst, if not the worst, I think it was the worst scoring bench in the NBA, and they still won 44 games, they still gave the Cavs a hell of a series. To take that team and strengthen their bench, I don't see the floor being below 44 wins. And, and frankly, that's even with the Reggie injury. I think I think even with that, with him missing 20 games, I still don't see them winning less than 45 or 46 games if things don't go all that well. So, Ben, I know you probably do, but do you agree that the floor is the same amount of wins that the team had last year? Mostly, except I'm a little bit more concerned about Reggie Jackson's injury, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, the last I heard, he was expected to miss 10 games. Maybe I'm out of the loop this weekend, but... Um, if he misses 20 games, then I think 
there's room to be concerned. I've, I've warmed up to Ish Smith a little bit as I've watched some tape and dug a little bit deeper into his passing stats. I, I think he's got potential that we can unpack next week. But if Reggie misses 20, ah, that that's scary to me. So if he misses 10 games and the Pistons can win at a 40% clip, I stand by everything I said. If he misses 20 games and they win at a 40% clip, they become a bubble team for me. Mm. It's good for Ish Smith if he takes advantage of this opportunity. Uh, and it looks like he's going to have every opportunity right now. Right, Sean, I'll start with you for most important player, Andre Drummond. And just how, how much do you think he's going to be affected by the loss of Reggie Jackson? Well, at first, you know, I don't know. I haven't really watched Ish play with Drummond at all. I mean, I, can't, I haven't watched any of these preseason games. I, I've seen a few highlights here and there, but I haven't seen a lot. And, and I don't know how well, I mean, obviously Reggie and Andre have great chemistry out the pick and roll, and it's going to be hard to replicate that. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, the, the bulk of Andre's game really is. I mean, teams were shutting that down already last year anyway. A lot of the time they were focusing on it so much. So Andre is still going to have to rebound and get putbacks. And, uh, you know, he's going to have to make some free throws and, you know, whatever he did in the off season, I mean, it doesn't seem to be showing up so far in, uh, in the preseason. I mean, he was over four, I think, uh, in their last game from the free throw line. So the virtual reality thing, maybe not helping all as much as they hoped it would. Um, if he still shoots 35% from, um, from the free throw line, it's going to be significant. If he can, if he can at least make it less attractive to do hack a Dre, then they can their ceiling becomes even higher. So yeah. we, we, he's rebounding rate. He's an absolute monster. <laughs> he could be a twenty twenty guy, um, but he's got to make some free throws if he's going to reach um, if he's going to reach that height. Yeah, and just to to move away from Andre Drummond, I think there's quite a bit more we could say about him. But uh, to focus on most intriguing player, Sean, I'll start with you. You have Stanley Johnson. What are your expectations for him in his second full NBA season? You know, not as high as what some of the real, um, you know, at, at least on DBB, what some of the guys are hoping for Stanley to have a breakout season. I don't think he's going to have a breakout season, like, and jump up and be like a 15-point-a-game scorer or anything like that. I I think that more than likely um, what he's going to do is have an incremental improvement. The, what, what's going to be – what's intriguing about it is that what kind of improvements does he make and, you know, is he going to become a more reliable three-point shooter consistently? Because that's going to be a huge help for the team. And is he going to be a guy who can take the ball off the dribble and create his own offense more reliably? Which is, those are, those are a couple of the things that the team uh, really needs more of. And if Stanley becomes this alpha male that everyone is hoping he can be and does more of those things, then, you know, again, it's just another thing that could raise the team's potential um, even higher. I'm not banking on, in my projections, by the way, for them to get to the Eastern Conference Finals in the best case. Um, you know, he does have to play better in order for them to get to that level. But for them to win their, you know, 46 to 50 games, he can kind of just be a little bit better than he was last year. They don't really need him to, to be to take like a Jimmy Butler leap in order for them to to uh, to improve. Ben, you had three players listed for most intriguing, uh, one of which is contract year KCP. Uh, so what are your expectations for him, and what type of player does KCP need to be if this team reaches its its full potential this season? There's my expectations for KCP, and then there's my hopes for KCP, and they're not <laughs> identical to each other. So my expectations for KCP are small incremental improvements in every part of his game, because that's what he's done every single year that he's been in the NBA. And and I think that's fine. I think there's no question about the fact that he's a 20 to 25 minute per game shooting guard on just about every playoff team 
in the NBA. And on some teams, he'd be more than that, like he is for the Pistons. My hopes for KCP, though, are much higher. Uh, and that's because I'm just so drawn to what he did in college in terms of his improvement from year to year as his role increased. And, and what I would hope for KCP this year is that his offensive game blossoms the way his defensive game blossomed in his first two seasons in the NBA. He's the go-to defender for every position on the perimeter, and rightfully so, because he's been the best defender in the Pistons perimeter the last several years. Offensively, in my opinion, the only place he's ever really shined is in transition. So for me, my hope for KCP is that in the half-court offense, he adds one of two things. Either he adds the consistency in terms of getting to the basket off the dribble, or he reliably and consistently improves his three-point shooting. And I think the three-point shooting is more realistic and probably more important given the fact that we have Reggie Jackson and Tobias Harris as probably the two primary ball handlers, as well as Marcus Morris as sort of a high-post uh, ball handler. So to me, I want KCP to become a true 3 and D player. He's already got the D down. He's a fantastic defender. I want to see him become that 36, 37, 38% or more three-point shooter, especially in the corners, because if he, I think if he does that, he opens up all sorts of other possibilities, both for Reggie Jackson and then for the other guys in the in the context of the Pistons offense who are going to be handling the ball. So, so that's my hope, is that he takes a significant step uh, in his three-point shooting this season. If he does, I think he's going to become pretty coveted uh, when it comes to his contract negotiations. I agree. I think we're in a situation where I would love for us to have a reason to pay him what he deserves as close to max as possible. Uh, I think that's kind of... You're right. That's that's where the line kind of blurs between hope and expectation. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot riding on KCP this year, and I know we'll talk a lot more about him throughout the throughout this season. Uh, so you had mentioned Boban in as one of your most intriguing players. He's my most intriguing player. Uh, I'll just turn to Sean Kors preview that he wrote in Detroit Bad Boys for everything you need to know about Boban Marjanovic. Uh, I think he's just my most loved player on this roster. I'm not sure how many times this offseason I put the number 51 jersey into an online shopping cart and then realized <laughs> that, like, I haven't seen him play basketball yet for the Pistons. So I, do I'm, you need to? I mean, 51. I know. So I, I know. Number 51. It's so great. It's it's everything about his potential that, that I'm so intrigued by. And part of that potential, and Sean, you mentioned this, was the, the pick and roll with Ish Smith. That's one of the strengths of Ish's game, at least what we saw in Philadelphia and what we've seen a bit this preseason. The potential of a Boban-Ish Smith pick and roll, I think it'd be really deadly for the Pistons, especially having some outlet shooters on that bench unit like John Luer, Stanley Johnson, if he's able to improve as a three-point shooter. Uh, I, I think there's a chance that Boban could be very deadly for the Pistons. And Sean Core talks about that and does a really good job breaking it down in his Pistons preview. And just so everyone knows, Detroit Bad Boys is breaking down every player on the Pistons roster, so look for those player previews and definitely check out the one on Boban. And to move on uh, to the trade machine is the player that Boban could be replacing if there was a trade, and that's Aaron Baines. We all had mentioned possibly trading Aaron Baines for depth at other positions. So Ben, I'll start with you. Uh, it seems he's the most likely player to be traded that's on the roster. A lot of that has to do with the contract. What would you like to see in return for Aaron Baines if we do trade him this season? So it depends a little bit on how Ish Smith develops, and it depends a little bit on how Reggie Bullock develops. I think those are the two real question marks going into this season. Is Reggie Bullock a reliable 15-minute-per-game shooting guard, or is he only good in stretches? 
We don't know the answer to that question yet. Uh, we don't know the answer to the question about how well Ishmith is going to work with the second unit, with the Bulban and John Luer, uh big man rotation. Uh, so, so what position do the Pistons want to upgrade? One or the two? I think the three is a little more solidified because you know what you're going to get out of Marcus Morris and Stanley Johnson for the most part. Uh, and Baines, to his credit, I think he worked himself into this situation. He, he had, a, in my opinion, a very quiet but very solid uh, season for the Pistons this year. And I think there's a, there are a lot of teams who would benefit with Aaron Baines as their second center to fill out the big runners. Good free throw shooter. You can put him in toward the end of games. He works hard on the glass. And although it looks a little crazy sometimes, he's actually a halfway decent scorer. Not a go-to True. guy by any stretch of the imagination, but a halfway decent scorer uh, in the pick and roll and surprisingly in the post. So I think he's worked himself into a situation where he's much more productive than his contract suggests that he is. And, and so the Pistons might find themselves in a, in a scenario where they can't afford to keep him. They probably wouldn't if they could, given the other resources they have invested. So what can they get for him, I think, is the question that they'll be thinking about, especially if Boban and Luer show that they can shoulder the, the backup five minutes uh, in a productive way. Yeah, and the guy that's going to have to make that decision at some point this season is head coach Stan Van Gundy. I, I, this is where I really saw a, a potential debate between you, Ben, and, and, and Sean, was your thoughts on Stan Van Gundy, and it kind of comes down to your just overall opinion of him as a coach. So that's kind of what I want to focus on. You rank him as an above-average coach, uh, while Sean, you have him as very good. So, Ben, I'll start with you. Why do you have him as just above-average? So I'm going to look at his body of work, and um, this is where I think sometimes the past may or may not be relevant, and so your opinion on how relevant his first 30 games were in Detroit is going to impact how good of a coach you think he is. When I rank Stan Van Gundy, I factor in Josh Smith, and I don't factor in Josh Smith just on the GM side of things. I think about the way Van Gundy talked about Josh Smith going into his first season with Detroit. I think about the way he used Josh Smith in those 26 or whatever games it was, uh, the disastrous beginning of the year, the disastrous start of the coaching tenure. And that factors into the decision for me. Um, I think people can make the case that he was just doing that so he could feature Josh Trish Smith for a trade or whatever. And I think that's that's fair. But then the second thing I would point to is I don't agree with the trajectory on which he's um, tried to develop Andre Drummond. I think I don't think making Andre Drummond a post scorer is the right move because I don't think Andre Drummond has those tools at his disposal. Um, we'll talk about this more next week, but I'm really hoping that Tobias Harris alleviates some of that because I think Tobias can emerge as the second option for the Pistons offense, and I think that'll be a good thing for Andre Drummond's development as a player. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think he's trying to force him into the Dwight Howard mold, and I think that's been a mistake. Uh, and I think the Pistons, it was a long-term gamble, but I think the Pistons could have been better even last year if they let Dre be a pick-and-roll guy, an offensive boards guy, and a defensive-oriented center. Um, now, with that said, I'm pretty harsh on a lot of coaches, so there are very few guys I've rated as above average. But those are the two main reasons I look at Van Gundy, the coach. And I think, yeah, he, he's not quite there yet. And I think in some of his interviews and press conferences, he's hinted the same thing. Um, so my evaluation of him overall is he's been a very good GM. Uh, his coaching just hasn't caught up with his GMing skills just yet, at least not in Detroit. But I think there's there's really good reasons to be optimistic that – his worst days as a coach in Detroit are behind him, and that the next two or three years could be, uh, they could be really special, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I also, 
agree that he's done a better job as general manager than as head coach. And I think a lot of Pistons fans have to be surprised by that because we saw the job he did as head coach in Orlando and we're not sure what type of front office executive he would be, how he would put together a roster. So I've been pleasantly surprised by what he's done in the in the front office. Uh, Sean, you have him as a very good head coach. Uh, after what Ben has said about just not knowing yet with his body work with the Pistons, why are you a little more sure about Stan as the coach? Well, I think he, I think it's hard to evaluate him unless you know what he's thinking. I mean, in terms of as a coach, you know, to, to question the Josh Smith thing, and I was one of the first ones that year when things were looking terrible in the beginning. I wrote this article about, man, are we smarter than Stan Van Gundy? Because what's up with Josh Smith leading the team in shots and minutes? Um, but I, I really think that... <laughs> You'd, you'd have to read his mind to know why he did what he did there. The fact that he got rid of them so quickly shows that he knew he might not fit. So maybe it was an experiment. He wanted to find out what he could get out of it, prove to Goris that he couldn't make him work, and then give, have a good excuse for shipping him out of town. Um, I, but, you know, I, I was frustrated during that time as well. As, as far as Drummond is concerned, Ben, totally agree right now. That's how it looks. It's frustrating. It'd be better to see him be, you know, DeAndre Jordan than watch him struggle with those little post moves. But... You know, if Stan is thinking, hey, maybe there's something here. He just got into town. He's been with Andre for two years. Maybe he figures he can turn him into a guy who can do more than just dunk. And if so, then you've got a guy who's uh, a mega super superstar rather than, you know, just a guy who can dunk. So it's he's giving it a shot. I think he's looking at the long term. And I think in the, in the short term, that does make things uh, harder. But, you know, maybe it's going to pay off. You, you can't really know until you see whether or not Andre, whether it clicks or not with him. Um, as far as the other things about coaching that you have to consider, though, there's more than just, you know, those particular facets. It's, it's um, being able to get players on the same page, having a good um, feeling between the players, like chemistry and everybody playing really hard and together, True. and good camaraderie. He's got a clean locker room with no bad eggs and no bad attitudes and no no clear conflicts or, or head games going on in the court. That's that is coaching right there. It's not just a GM going out and finding guys who are who have good uh, attitudes, but it's also fostering that kind of um, camaraderie uh, in the locker room and creating it. And so, I, you know, I'm not going to hesitate to call him a very good coach because I think it's easy to take for granted the things he does well. And uh, as well as it's a little bit easier to look at what isn't working well. And if you can go to any team in the league, aside from maybe the top five coaches, I'm going to stick with it. And I think that when, when they do ascend into, uh, you know, the Eastern Conference Finals within the next couple of years, um, I think more people are going to be agreeing. Just to pull out one of the one of the things you had touched on there, kind of tying his assessment to the, the production and progression of Andre Drummond. For your top storyline, you had picked Drummond's free throws. And a, a really no Pistons podcast would be complete without mentioning Andre Drummond and free throws. So talk a bit about what you expect that storyline to be when it when it comes to Drummond and free throw shooting. Uh, well, I would say, first of all, I you know, <laughs> in spite of my optimism, I'm not optimistic about that. Um, the reason I'm not the reason I'm not optimistic about that is because uh, of my profession and what I do, and I don't really know whether this VR thing, this virtual reality thing, um, is going to make any difference. Um, I'd be. It, it seems to me the first thing I heard about, it, I was like, well, cool. At least they're doing something that's focused on the mental approach, and it actually does make a lot of sense. I was I was um, sharing these thoughts with somebody on. With, with, a couple of the guys on DBB that basically having him strap on this VR machine and watch himself 
shooting free throws and making them, or from his own vantage point watching the ball going through the hoop. It's basically a, a, a ridiculously expensive version of what hypnosis can do. Meaning hmm. I could, for the cost of my hourly fee, sit with him and have him close his eyes, hypnotize him, and visualize doing the exact same thing, which is exactly what a hypnotist uh, who works with athletes as a mental coach does, is he has them visualize that. It's just that when you hypnotize somebody and you have them viewing the successful outcome, it's more powerful because they're in a more receptive state of mind. You're getting them into a better state of mind for learning, for creativity, for positivity. So if, if he ends up becoming a 50% free throw shooter after doing a summer of VR, I will be shocked. I mean, I would be very surprised because that would be a tremendous development of technology producing an unprecedented result and improvement. Uh, if I got my hands on him, I think I could make him a 50% free throw shooter because I think a lot of it has to do with attitude. And that's that's something that's, um, that's difficult to change through conscious uh, willpower or or discussion or counseling alone. Yeah, and we'll definitely have you on again and talk about that because after 20 or 30 games into this season, and that's when we'll get a better idea of his free throw percentage, and and I'd like to bring you on just to talk a little bit more about what it would take if he's not quite there yet because you're right, I'm not quite as optimistic about that number getting closer to 50% just because of an advancement in technology or just changing his thinking. Well, I think that's what it is. I'm not sure if what I've heard this offseason leads me to believe uh, what he's done so far will kind of unlock it for him. So, Ben, I just to wrap up the Pistons, I know you have them as a playoff team. How many wins for this team in 2016-17? Yeah, so I did this win projection a little bit before the Reggie Jackson injury, and that's the wild card for me. But I think they're a very good team, uh, and I have them currently slated in at 49 wins, which is just barely below the top three in the East in Cleveland, Toronto, and Charlotte. I think they're a very good team that is very likely to have first-round home court advantage in the playoffs, which I'm thrilled about, and and hopefully we can uh, have a DVB night during the playoffs. That'd be fantastic. Sean, how many wins for the Pistons this season? Well, I initially thought 50. Um, You know, my range was like 48 to 52, 53, something like that, and I just settled on 50 because things go wrong. With the Reggie trade, that probably knocks a couple wins off that projection. I I think more than likely now, if they were to get, you know, 48 wins, I think that'd be really great if he misses uh, a significant chunk at the beginning of the season. So, um, but yeah, I think right up there around 50, and and, um, that's without KCP being a 36% three-point shooter and without Stanley Johnson (laughs) making a huge leap and without Drummond hitting 50% of his free throws. Any of those things happen, then, uh, you know, I think they could do better than that. For my my number, I've got it at 45. I know I said this on the Limited Upside podcast as well, 45 wins, and I drew a little bit of heat for it, but I'm going to stand by it. Even learning now about the Reggie Jackson injury and the extent of it, how many games he might miss, I'm going to keep it the same. I have it at 45 wins. Uh, I've got the team as the five seed in the East, so that puts them in a first-round series with the Atlanta Hawks, which I think would be very interesting if Stan Van Gundy had a seven-game series against Dwight Howard. Uh, I would love to see that, just from the the storylines and how it would play out if we played the Hawks in the first round. And as much as I would like to continue with that, we did a really strong 35 minutes on the Pistons, so I'm going to leave it at that. Did you really? (laughs) We did. For anyone itching for more, next week we will have a full preview on just the Detroit Pistons, just talking about the team. Four hours long. Yes, a (laughs) four-part, six-hour epic. It's going to be our Deer Hunter. I'm really looking forward to it. The Game of Thrones Pistons edition. Yes, 
Yes, everyone look for that next week. To kind of cap and put a bow on the Central Division, number one are the Cleveland Cavaliers, and I don't really want to talk about the Cavs. And I'm not sure how much there is to say about the Cavs. Best case scenario is probably winning. Worst case scenario is not winning a title. Uh, But I'm sure you two can offer a little more in depth just because I'm not that excited about talking about this team at all. Uh, So, Sean, I'll start with you. Your best and worst case for the Cavs this season. Yeah, unfortunately, the best case is that they could win it again. The the worst case is that they get an injury or they, they aren't playing well and they deal Kevin Love and the pieces they get back don't fit very well and they kind of... They lose to the Celtics or the Raptors or something like that, or, or you know, the Pistons if they end up taking off. Uh, that's probably as bad as it gets for them is Eastern Conference Finals. So it's not really a lot of fun to talk about because they are what they are, they are where they are, and they're going to be good for the next couple of seasons. Um, the, the thing I like about them is that they do give the Pistons somebody to hate and somebody to strive to beat, and um, in that regard, they serve the role well. That's true, and I wanted to talk a bit about that. Do you see a budding rivalry, Ben, between uh, the Pistons and Cavs? Because clearly the Cavs right now are the top team. Uh, and I agree with Sean, that's that's good for the Pistons, but do you see a rivalry building between the two teams? Oh, God, I hope so, if for no other reason than it's a perfect flip to script on LeBron. You know, right when he's up and coming, the Pistons are dominating the Eastern Conference, and basically single-handedly, he dethrones the Pistons uh, as the Cavaliers search the NBA Finals. I think it would be fantastic as a Pistons fan to see that uh, turn on its head and see the Pistons be the team uh, that manages to sort of dethrone the Cavs as the top team in the East. That Just poetically, for no other reason, that would be fantastic. With uh, LeBron James in mind, Sean, you have him as the most important player. How important is LeBron through the regular season? Because I'd pick Kyrie Irving because I was hoping that Kyrie would take a bit of the pressure. Not hoping, but I was thinking Kyrie would take a bit of the pressure off of LeBron James during the regular season. What are your expectations for him this upcoming uh, regular season? Yeah, there are already a lot of articles being written about LeBron and rest, and, and just the NBA and rest in general. Uh, the teams are starting to rest their their key players more often, at least the really good teams are, giving them an occasional game of rest. So I think that's going to be actually like a sort of storyline this year uh, underneath the surface for the Cavs is everyone knows that when the playoffs come, if they're all fresh and can turn it on and healthy, that the Cavs can beat anybody. So right. really, even if they end the season with 45 wins, it's like, well, they still got LeBron, Love, and, and Irving. You know, they could probably still beat anybody even if they have to uh, beat them on their own home courts. So I think he's gonna they're going to play in fewer minutes. They're going to rest them more, and it is going to be Kyrie. And hopefully for them, for their sake, Kyrie doesn't get injured again. And uh, hopefully Kevin Love, for them, stays healthy and plays well because uh, they're not all that deep. You know, yeah. their second unit is filled with uh, a lot of very, you know, aging guys really far down on the, on the downswing who don't really have a lot of uh, gas left in the tank. Yeah, almost our entire bench is made up of guys that if you told me a year ago that they had retired, I would have completely believed it. You've got Mike Dunleavy, uh, Channing Fry, J.R. Smith is back, uh, just signing a, a big extension four years to remain with the Cavs. Uh, that's probably a good move. But again, it is kind of an aging core of players, so if there are injuries, 
that could really affect Chris the Cavs. Yeah, you got Chris, Chris Anderson. That's right. I, I saw him in an <laughs> yeah, Indians gonna, cap the other night. That was they're going to trade for Sasha Vujicic just to complete the, <laughs> oh, they're not retired? Second. Oh, second. They're going to yes. bring, bring Bill Russell out of retirement or somebody else who's looking to get one last ring, right? Right, someone that just wants one more, exactly. Uh, but with just the injury concern, having an old bench like that, and then having someone like Kyrie Irving, the reason I think he's most important is having him healthy is going to be really crucial during the season. But I could also see LeBron just deciding to forget rest and chase another MVP. Uh, ben, what do you think are the odds of that this season, of LeBron playing at that MVP caliber again? Does he still have it? Well, yeah, on a permanent basis, LeBron... I'm going to flip-flop on this. Last year, I would have said Steph Curry. This year, I'm going to go back to LeBron after watching the NBA Finals. On a permanent basis, he's still the best player on the planet, which is incredible, given all of the miles that he has on that odometer. Um, But, you know, I I hope that he's a little older and wiser, and I hope that he actually does rest for his own sake. And I'm the biggest LeBron hater on the planet, I think. But (laughs) I, I, I would not be at all surprised to see the Cavs take a fairly significant step back in the regular season. It, largely due to the fact that LeBron needs to rest and they need to focus on the playoffs and not the regular season. So, you know, to me, it'd be hard to see a scenario in which he wins the MVP because I don't think the Cavs are going to be all that impressive in terms of their uh, regular season win totals. I, I just think they're going to take a step back. I'd even go farther than Sean and say their depth is not just a concern. It's kind of terrifying. I mean, they have no depth whatsoever at any position. So, even ignoring injury concerns, even if they're healthy, their depth is a problem. Um, so, yeah, I see them taking a step back in the regular season, and I think that hurts LeBron's MVP chances. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and moving on to most intriguing player, we all have Kevin Love. Uh, and I know we also all mentioned Kevin Love as a possible uh, player that could be traded on this Cavs roster. What I think is most intriguing about Kevin Love is how quickly the Cavs literally and figuratively put Baby in a corner. They were so quick to take a player that was one of the rising stars in the NBA, a player with a phenomenal offensive game, had great post moves, could shoot threes, do a little bit of everything, and turn him into basically a corner shooter. And there were all the stories that came out, and now I'm not sure how true any of them were at the time, about Kevin Love and the chemistry issues in the locker room. I think what's really intriguing about Kevin Love is he seemed to, in the playoffs, be completely fine with that role, and then also blossomed when he was played at the five in small ball lineups, which is probably what you can expect from Kevin Love if he's with the Cavs this season. Uh, Sean, down for trade, Love for a better fit. So even with that kind of role he has in Cleveland currently, you see someone that could have a better fit for this team? Or a type of player? I think there's a... I think there are actually a couple reasons now why why love could be dealt in a way that made sense. Well, and one that's coming to mind right now is is depth actually because they could turn Kevin Love into two uh, rotation quality players from a team that needs a superstar because Kevin Love can't really be a superstar on the Cavs, but Kevin Love could be a superstar on plenty of other teams in the NBA, like the number one option and a guy who does put up again like you know. 20 and 12 or something like that every night. Uh, the Cavs don't need him for that. So when I say a better fit, it's like, you know, they've had, they have redundancies due to the star power. They've got three guys who are number one options and they don't need three guys who are number one options. It's great. They won a championship, um, but they're going to be hurting for depth 
And if any of those guys gets injured, they're, they're, they're really going to have a hard time, um, you know, beating Golden State or even getting to the finals. So if, if the right if the right scenario comes along and they're not clicking or he's not happy, then yeah, I could see them turning him into maybe a less awesome four and also another guy who like provides greater depth um, at, you know, at one of their other positions. Yeah. And one of the things I think they could find in a trade for love is maybe a wing player, another defender uh, like Iman Shumpert, who maybe is just a three and D player. I would love if there was a take-back trade and they could get Andrew Wiggins and the Timberwolves could get Kevin Love because I would love to see Carl Anthony Towns and Kevin Love play together. Uh, and I think Wiggins on the Cavs as well. Again, another wing player that, that really could help that team quite a bit. Uh, for trades, Ben, you had mentioned depth at point guard, uh, but also everywhere else. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what exactly are you looking for in a return for Kevin Love? Yeah, so... If you could, if you're the Cavs GM, you're the Cavs leadership, and you could trade Kevin Love for three players that are the caliber of John Luer at two, three, and four, do you think the Cavs would be better or worse? And to me, I have a really hard time answering that question, but I lean towards better because yeah. I think that's essentially what they get from Kevin Love. Not in terms of talent, but just strictly in terms of his production. If you could get two or three guys who could just stand in the corner and shoot threes and be competent everywhere else and play completely around Kyrie and LeBron James, I think the Cavs are probably a little bit better. And so to me, that's just a natural trade. Kevin Love, for any depth at one, two, and three, and especially the one, given that they lost Olivadova, and two, given that Kyrie is... is Fantastic as he has to watch, he's been extremely fragile and has a lot of injury history. And, and it's true. Uh, that's true for just about everybody else on the roster who's not starting. So to me, that's the natural trade. Kevin Love for adequate, competent players, three or more, uh, and I think they might pull the trigger. I think Orlando might be a good destination for him. Maybe they could swing back Ibaka and DJ Augustine and one of their other wing players for him. Ooh. Might be a good fit for them down there as well. And the Magic would have the other pieces around Kevin Love that can make them a, a playoff team in, in the future with, with Love there. That's, that's a good one, Sean. Yeah, I like that. that just, just totally made that up off the spot. So I like me. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, moving on to the coach, Tyron Lue. Uh, we, we all rank him around average in terms of coaches in the NBA. Was he an upgrade over David Blatt, Ben? Just from what you saw for a coach on the sideline of the Cavs, was he an upgrade over Blatt? In terms of wins and losses, that's objectively not the case. I mean, they were basically the same team yeah. for all intents and purposes, but that's not what matters. I mean, what matters is keeping LeBron happy, and if it takes promoting Teron Lou, then that's what you do, and that's what they did. Yeah, I think this is a good kind of wait-and-see year on Lou. Uh, but you're right, they were fantastic in the playoffs, and if that style continues into the regular season, this could be... A- a very difficult, this could be not just the number one seed in the East, but the number one overall team in terms of wins and losses this season. That's if they're interested in going after that. Uh, and I know you have that as your top storyline, Sean, is is rest. There's a chance that maybe they take the pedal off a bit, uh, they take the foot off the pedal a bit in the regular season to keep themselves ready for the playoffs. Uh, why is that your top storyline, just the idea of rest? 
Well, because it's it's sort of, uh, I mean, there's no one in the East who could really challenge them given the way they played last year. I, I don't true. care how good Horford is. Boston is nowhere near ready, even a best-case scenario, to take the Cavs to seven games or to beat them. Um, I, I don't think Toronto has that potential either. They're just they're, they're a team equally as old as the Cavs, but just with less talent. Um, they're not going to get any better, um, not significantly better than the Cavs in the next two or three years. So really, Cleveland just has to decide, um, you know, how much they want to play their big guys, their main guys during the regular season. And when you have, like, you know, paper-thin depth and you've got your second unit is all guys who are older than your first unit, um, you know, how much can you rely on those guys without dropping a bunch of games in the middle of the season? So it's going to be interesting to see how they navigate that. For top storyline, Ben, you had uh, Kevin Love trade scenarios. Do you see those trade rumors popping up if the team is playing really well, or is it only if the team is resting and, and maybe not playing quite as well as they had last year? And just as a point of clarification for all of the DVB baseball, I actually had scenarios. Scenarios. The R was yep. missing on purpose. Um, Scenarios. <laughs> <laughs> only I'm, the most devoted are going to get that one. Yes, that, that's pretty inside. I, I miss. I missed that initially. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I think Kevin Love trade is is the most natural thing for the Cavs, and I think you know, given the way he played in the finals, he did fine in his role. But man, contrast that to Minnesota, and he's just standing alone in the corner. I think as good of a teammate as he was, and as much as he was you know, a cheerleader on the sidelines, you got to think he wants to be able to utilize his talents more. Uh, so I think that's the overriding headline for the season for a Cavs team that is going to struggle, uh, as I talked about in the regular season. What would it take for this team to drop below the top few seeds in the East? Would it just be injuries, Sean? Yeah, it would have to be injuries or it would have, I mean, like there's no way that the top, those top three guys don't, you know, stay healthy, and this team isn't in the top three in the East. That just right. that's it would have to be a it would be a bizarre world for that to happen. So if if but you know if uh, you know Kyrie is you know injury prone and Love's had a major injury in the past, so if either of those guys get knocked out, then they just don't have the guys behind them um, to to be able to sustain that level of play. Sure, and with that, Sean, how many wins for the Cavs this year? I'm saying 55. I think if they rest more than um, more than expected, it could get down, you know, 52 wins, somewhere in that range. But that's probably as low as it gets if they're healthy. And is 55 a number that's good enough to be the number one team in the East this year? Uh, it is for me. Okay. It is for me. I, I, I'm not as high on Toronto and Boston as some other people are. I think they're going to be great, but they're not going to be Cleveland great. So that's they're my top team. Uh, Sean, I agree with you. 55 wins, and that's good enough for the number one seed for this year. Uh, ben, what about you? How many wins? No, I'm lower. I have them at 51. I think the loss of Della Vadova hurts them quite a bit in terms of ball handling. And I think their depth is a real problem. And, I mean, look, Mike Dunleavy and Richard Jefferson are going to be expected to play significant minutes for that team this year. And True. Both of them are quality players and quality role players. But, my goodness, if you're relying on anything more than 1,000 minutes from those kinds of guys, you know, you're, you're gambling a whole lot on – really old players, and I think uh, that's going to hurt them over the course of 82 games, but uh, make them no less scary in the course of a seven-game series going into the playoffs if they're even remotely healthy. So, yeah, I think we're good right there. That's that's the Central Division. That's all, all five teams that kind of round out our division previews for the Eastern Conference. Next week, we will have uh, a Pistons-only preview 
uh, before the season tips off. And the season will be tipping off in about 12 days for the Pistons. October 26th is the first game. We're getting close to basketball that actually counts, Ben. I'm getting excited. Yeah, let's go. It can't get here quick enough. Yeah, I agree. Sean, thank you so much for coming on. We'll definitely have you uh, on closer to the middle part of the season when we can start to talk a bit about hypnotizing Andre Drummond and, and taking this into our own hands with his free throws. I hope he doesn't need me, but uh, I'd be <laughs> happy to come back and talk to you guys. It was great to be here. Awesome. All right, well, thanks, guys. We'll be talking soon.